Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep What the Moon Saw by Isabel Meredith. This is first published in The Black Cat, July 1896. And um, I didn't find a ton of other publications except there were there were i think two um in 1925 in some newspapers so the one that i got to read was the coronado eagle and journal october 6th 1925 and it's virtually identical there's a couple lines different um but i i i think the story should be better known it's it's kind of a fun um, little story that really gives some insight into, I think, what was happening in, in the time it was written. Did uh, I mention where, yeah, J- July 1896, The Black Cat, right? Do you have any idea, Jesse, if it might have been published anywhere else earlier? I I, I, I ask because it begins in, a, it's set in 1891. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the American uh, South, and Isabel Meredith is a pseudonym for two of the Rossetti siblings, the the much 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 more famous ones being Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Christina Rossetti, um, and they're English. So what we have here is a story that claims to be published to take place in 1891 in the American South. You're saying that it was published in 1896, and we already know that the actual writers are, in fact, British. So I'm just wondering, is it possible that it was published earlier than 96? Well, Why that? Uh, I, see no, I see no evidence that it was, and I also have some evidence that it wasn't. The evidence that I have that it wasn't was that it, it was published in The Black Cat, which was only buying new stories. Now... Ah. sometimes as far as i can tell they only ever bought news stories and they had writing contests it was it was a pretty interesting market but um they also um i i think if i think it would have been better known had it been published earlier and then they they wouldn't have bought it because it it's a pretty interesting story it is uh what shall we yes Summarize it or read it. Oh, I'd love you to. Re- I'd love you to read it for us if you can. It's not super long. All right then. What the moon saw. By Isabel Meredith. In the autumn of 1891, I was advised by my physician to pass a portion of the winter in the South. After much searching, I decided upon Asheville, North Carolina, as the most desirable place in which to recuperate. A few days later, accordingly, I started for the south, and when I reached Henry's, which was at that time the railroad terminus, and stepped off the train, my hand was grasped heartily by my old friend, Dr. Mason, who had been advised of my coming and whom I had not met for some years." How long shall you remain here, was his first question, only to dine and then go on the stage to Asheville this afternoon, I replied. Oh, come now, stay over one night, and I promise you some rare sport after the moon rises. Having no plans to be upset by this change, I agreed to spend the night in the quaint but comfortable old hostelry at Henry's. While at dinner, I learned that my friend Mason was to hold the stakes for a most remarkable wager. It had been made between two young men 
who were staying in the vicinity for the shooting season. They were Ned French and Albert Turner, who belonged to the class known as Rich Men's Sons and had come to the land of the sky for a shooting trip. The wager in question was the outcome of a heated discussion on personal courage. French had bet $100 that Turner would not get into an open grave at midnight and drive a nail into the coffin of the departed saint or sinner. And Turner had unhesitatingly accepted the challenge. Mason, as I said, was to be stakeholder and I, as his friend, was permitted to be a witness. The time appointed for this weird proceeding was midnight, and the affair was to be kept strictly among ourselves. For a small amount of money and a larger amount of whiskey and tobacco, four Negroes, none of whom could be persuaded to undertake the work until that number had been secured, had agreed to open a grave in the forlorn, neglected little churchyard about a mile from the station. In the evening, I was duly introduced to French and Turner, and we passed the time until the appointed hour by alternately playing billiards and cards and telling ghost stories. Throughout our weirdest tales, Turner, however, listened unmoved, even adding a few himself. He was a big, handsome fellow of about five and twenty and had, before the end of his first year at college, where he had been the center rush of the football eleven, gained the reputation of being a fearless daredevil and a total stranger under any and all circumstances to that sensation known as fear. The night was beautifully clear and calm, and the whole village was wrapped in solemn silence when we noiselessly crept out of the hotel on our strange errand. The Negroes had gone ahead to do their share of the work. Turner, as he received from the stakeholder the nails and hammer, remarked, Seems a shame to be forced to disturb the spirit of the departed, but a challenge is a challenge, and I shan't weaken. Influenced by his lightheartedness, we started off in high spirits, but after the first half mile of our walk, we all grew strangely depressed and silent. With every step, the scene became more solemnly impressive and calculated to work on the imagination. The brilliancy of the moonlight on the tall pines made the scattering gravestones on the hillside on our left stand out like miniature ghosts, and the rugged old Blue Ridge peaks in the distance looked hideously grim and threatening once the stillness was broken by a frightened rabbit that darted into the road and ran in front of us for several hundred feet, then suddenly turned and, sitting upright, gazed at us curiously for several moments. As we turned off the main road and entered a narrow lane, we were startled by an owl that fluttered from among the pines, hooting ominously as it circled slowly above us. A moment later, sounds of weird music floated through the night. By a common impulse, we all halted in breathless expectancy. Gazing up the slope at the end of the lane, we beheld in the crystal moonlight the four darkies, sitting about the newly opened grave, chanting with weird solemnity, but true jubilee rhythm, masses in the cold, cold ground. We stood entranced until the last wailing cadence had died away, and then, shaking off the spell produced by the impressive scene and melody, proceeded to the grave.
It was that of a man who had been dead about two years, but the coffin, so the Negro said, was in a good state of preservation. The dark pit yawned cold and dismal as one by one we gathered around it. Turner, wearing his shooting cap and a long, loose ulster reaching to his feet, stood for a moment on the brink, his eyes measuring the depth with daredevil carelessness. Then, quickly stooping, he lowered himself and called for the hammer and nail. As his head disappeared, every eye followed him with tense excitement. Even the darkies, who at our approach had withdrawn to the background, could not restrain themselves and now rushed forward with glistening eyes and eagerly peered down into the grave. A moment later, we heard one, two, three dull, muffled sounds as the nail made its way into the coffin. He's won the bet, exclaimed half a dozen voices in excited chorus and the loosening of the intense strain of the last half hour found expression in a tumult of cheers and laughter. The loser of the bet was the first to stoop and reach for Turner's hand. As the man in the grave, however, remained silent, making no attempt to rise, Dr. Mason, suspecting an attempted joke, laughingly exclaimed that, as no one appeared to claim the stakes, he would donate them to the church whose grounds they had desecrated. Still, the man in the grave neither moved nor spoke. Then French, with one hand on the brink of the grave, lowered himself and had no sooner seized Turner's arm than he shouted, He's fainted! Quick! Help me pull him out! He had hardly spoken when Mason reached down from the opposite side of the grave, and as the two raised the man in their arms, we distinctly heard a sharp sound like that of tearing cloth. They placed the limp figure on the grass, and someone struck a match. The instant that its flickering blaze lit up the rigid white face We all shrank back in horror as Mason exclaimed, He's dead! In driving the nail into the coffin, Turner had sent it through the skirt of his long ulster, and on attempting to rise, had felt himself held down by an unseen power. The sudden horror of the situation had paralyzed him with a fear that even he could not master, and before thought and reason could come to his assistance, His heart had ceased to beat. Very nice. Thank you. (laughs) We we did a a story called One Summer Night by Ambrose Bierce, which is uh, Mm -hmm. another grave digging story um, with a spook (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, in the graveyard where you somebody's frightened and they all run off. I think there was a clap of thunder in that one. Um, here he scared himself to death. <laughs> um, but I, I, although I, I like this kind of story with the, it literally has the word weird a whole bunch of times in it. It's a weird tale before weird tales existed. Um, yeah. this, the supernatural element is foreshadowed and then revealed to be a, a, um, it's naturalized. A natural, yeah, surprise. But I actually find myself more intrigued with the the framing, and then the the setting, and the word choices than sort of the reveal. What what was it that it attracted you to this story? You're opening a floodgate, Jesse. You sure you want to do that before you have a crack at it? Uh, no, I, I'm I'm genuinely curious. Reading the story literally, that is, do these plot elements 
make up the whole of what we are supposed to be interested in in the story. I find it an early example of what I call the Scooby-Doo Gothic, Mm. um, which first comes out importantly in the work of Anne Radcliffe in 18th century novels like um, in early 19th century novels like The Mysteries of Udolfo. Mm-hmm. As, as the Gothic developed with its supernatural and its cemeteries and its its ghosts and its, you know, terrible sexual things in the background of nuns being raped and so on, um, what happens is that um, y- y- People get tired in a way. There's just one twist after another. Uh, And you get huge, huge novels like Matthew Gregory's The Monk. What Anne Radcliffe did was add a whole new kind of twist at the end by naturalizing it, showing that all of these supernatural things were actually natural. And that's why I think of it as the Scooby-Doo gothic. It's, you know, it's, it turns out that it was really just old Mr. Wilson from down the block, Mm -hmm. you know, wearing a mask. And, in that sense, this is, since it's 1896, um, this is a pretty early example of popular culture picking up that gothic explique, the explained gothic, the Scooby-Doo ending. And, you know, in this case, because there really is, there are no twists leading up to it, it's the ending itself that's the one twist that's supposed to give us a thrill. So it has an interesting place, read literally, in the history of Gothic literature, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not enough to make me think of it as a particularly good story. What I like is the possibility that this story by two left-wing politically engaged Rossetti sisters is actually about slavery and its sequelae in the United States. The the speaker is advised by his physician to spend a winter in the South. Mm-hmm. We're never told what it is he needs to recuperate from, but just like the New Yorkers who grew rich on the cotton trade because of the importance of New York as a harbor um, before and after the Civil War, Um, This New Yorker, excuse me, this northerner has some problem and he needs to recuperate from it, his doctor says, by going to the south. And so he goes to the south and we don't know what it is he's going to learn or do or feel that will help with his recuperation. He's met by an old friend, but someone he hadn't met in many years whose name is Dr. Mason. Mm -hmm. Of course, traditionally, the Mason-Dixon line is what divided the free states of the North from the slave states of the South. This is a story written in 18, published in 1896. It's fully 30 years, actually 31 years after the end of the Civil War. It's in fact past the official end of Reconstruction. And yet, the blacks in this story are still referred to as darkies. Mm-hmm. The, the story makes reference to Stephen Foster's very famous song, Masses in the Cold, Cold Ground, which is part of the entire Southern fiction that really blacks preferred slavery 
because they were so well cared for and their lives were so well organized in the plantation system. Um, and so these, these blacks who are smart enough not to be willing to mess around with the supernatural unless there's enough of them, um, they've already been in the grave. I mean, they had to be to remove the, the, the dirt from it. But they had not, in fact, tried to put a nail into the coffin. Now, this story, if you view it as being about slavery, um, what, what Turner is doing is uh, trying to put another nail into the coffin to keep something buried. Um, mm. You'll notice the puns all along when um, we're told that Mason that is the guy who whose line makes possible slavery. Mason is the stakeholder. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think of that as a pun. As we see the word stakes and stakeholder again and again, it happens in the full moon at midnight. It happens that the Gabriel, that the Rossetti siblings were the children of a woman whose brother was J.W. Polidori, the guy who, wrote The Vampire, mm -hmm. published in 1819, the first book-length discussion of vampires, fiction about vampires, in the English language. So they're growing up in London. Their uncle has written The Vampire. They're writing this story. What is the horrible thing that has to be kept down? I think the thing that has to be kept down is Southern slavery. That, in fact, if you look at it enough, maybe you'll recuperate and stop ah. bearing that sickness mm. that the darkies know that they should not want to go here, do that, but they are compelled by necessity. They need the money and they want the whiskey and the tobacco. And so they go and they look and they see what's going on. And they sing masses in the cold, cold ground, but we have no reason to believe that the guy who's been dead for only two years was ever in fact, a slave owner. Uh, in fact, if he was 25 years old, um, like uh, the, the fellows with the bet, he would have been born after slavery. But if he really was an old man, he could have been a slave holder. Mm -hmm. And masses in the cold, cold ground might in 1891, which is when the story says it's set, actually be ironic. So then what happens is that the man who says he has no fear has himself tied himself to the dead weight of a terrible and presumably outmoded institution. He has nailed himself by his bravado to the corpse of slavery. Mm. And when he thinks that he is captured by it, if our narrator is correct, Thought and reason cannot come quickly enough for him to actually just expire. His heart ceases to beat. I can't help but think that read this way, these two ladies who are collectively Isabel Meredith, whose only work of consequence was in fact a political tract, um, these two ladies are trying to write a story about how if you really pay attention to what's going on, you'll realize when you delve into slavery, it's heart stopping. So to read the Gothic 
explique used for such a subtle but nonetheless consistent and powerful political purpose in the late 1890s when blacks are nominally free but in fact suffer from institutionalized racism throughout the United States, I think of this as potentially a subtle and brilliant way of raising those issues. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I mentioned the uh, Coronado uh, Eagle and Journal publication uh, from October 6, 1925. And I, I did a pretty close comparison between the two texts because maybe something would be changed. And there was a couple of things changed, but they were mostly uh, ex- excisions, things that were removed. And I think it's interesting to think about why they might have been removed. It might have been for space, but you could choose a whole bunch of stuff to remove for space, including words, uh, individually here or there. But the two that I noted um, most prominently, and I think really the only two, were um, are in our version. It's on page 37. Um, and it's about how the Negroes were employed. It's right at the top. For a small amount of money and a large amount of whiskey and tobacco, four Negroes, none of whom could be persuaded to undertake their work until that number had been secured, had agreed to open the grave in a florin neglected little churchyard about a mile from the station. So, um, the way that is changed is um, it's just money. For a small amount of money, four Negroes had, had been secured to open a little sorry, to open a grave in the forlorn, neglected little churchyard. So the, the, the part that's been removed is for whiskey and tobacco. A small amount of money and a, a more whiskey and tobacco. And then the line, that number had been secured. And then I started thinking about the numbers in this story. There's four black men and there's how many white men? Four. Right, one in the grave, right? No, that makes five. Okay, <laughs> five. Because right? it's the it's the narrator, Dr. Mason, and the two with the wager. And I'm assuming that the narrator is male, um, but we and and why? That's what I'm saying. The narrator. So yeah. that's four four living men, and then there's the fellow in the right, grave, and then there's the the, the fifth in the right. grave. Um, but it, it's interesting to remove uh, if you read it again. For a small amount of money and a larger amount of whiskey and tobacco, four Negroes, none of whom could be persuaded to undertake the work until that number had been secured. I first time I read it, I assumed that I guess I assumed that the the am- amount of money was what was needed, right? But actually, I oh. think it is the number of men that is needed. So that's my reading too. And why is that in there? So seeing it not in there later on, r- r- removing the the uh, whiskey and tobacco, that could be a statement, I suppose. But then um, the other excision is in the description of their journey to the graveyard. Um, after they they spend um, all their time, uh, it doesn't say smoking and drinking, but rather playing billiards and cards and telling ghost stories until the appointed time, they start walking to the grave, graveyard at midnight. And then... It goes like this. With every step, the scene became more solemnly impressive and calculated to work on the imagination, which is great because we're reading a story that's calculated to do that exactly. And then this is the part that's excised. 
The brilliancy of the moonlight in the tall pines made the scattering gravestones on the hillside on our left stand out like miniature ghosts, and the and the rugged old Blue Ridge peaks in the distance looked hideously grim and threatening. And then that this part is abridged um, with the word just leading to once the stillness was broken by a frightened rabbit and darted into the room. And then we get the, the owl. So what's removed is the miniature ghosts, the brilliancy of the, of the moonlight, which I think we actually need again. And I was thinking, well, well, it's interesting. Why is this removed? Well, that word just once actually makes it, or the word just being inserted in front of the once in the stillness actually makes the narrator unreliable. Because, in fact, it's not just once the stillness is broken. It's several times, right? First, it's the, it's the frightened rabbit. Then it's the owl. And then, of course, it's the music of the singing Negroes. And one little word can make the narrator much more unreliable. And I thought that that was, it was, so are we, when we're reading this, are we to take it as, as it is, just as a, a true story? But then thinking about the framing, right? He goes to the South, well, he or she, I assume a he, goes to the South advised by a physician to pass a portion of the winter in the south for what reason <laughs> maybe it's uh mental health right <laughs> we don't know but what we do know is that he, he's pro he's since since um he's unlikely to have uh, benefited from this <laughs> health wise i don't know if it's mental health it's interesting and i i also note the number so we've got the four black men the four white men, presumably. And then when the bet has been won, it's half a dozen voices calling out that he has won. That's six. Well, one. That's right. That's right. One's in the ground, uh, dead. <laughs> we don't know that yet. Uh, on top of the other dead man that's down there. And the narrator, who doesn't send he's won the bet, it's very interesting, like little number number thing if you just do the math like this it's it, there's so many little touches we don't learn that much about french right we don't know much about him but we know a lot about turner the daredevil wearing the ulster which is uh, an ulster is like what sherlock holmes wears in the sign of the four and the uh the hound of the baskervilles right one of those caped um gentlemen's uh maybe just a workman's uh, piece of clothing. He nails himself. Oh, I think the, the imagery in here is so suggestive, but I think the calculation is also doing a number on us. I agree. I think that uh, with, with uh, Turner dead um, and the narrator acting as if he is merely an observer, um, we have six living people, the four darkies, French and Dr. Mason. So those are the six, that's the half dozen voices that mm -hmm. the narrator hears. Uh, he himself doesn't engage uh, from my viewpoint. He's withholding his engagement because he'd rather not believe that he's a participant mm. in the economy of the South. Mm -hmm. 
we see the economy of the South because we see that these two guys who play fast and loose with life and death. And and the law, too. They, what they're are, doing is are illegal. Are rich men's sons. Yeah. It's a whole class of people. Yes. And, and the doctor who presumably, you know, is someone who cures people. After all, um, we, we're thinking about curing because our narrator has been advised by his physician mm-hmm. to go to the South. The doctor, instead of curing anybody, actually holds the stakes and hands the, nam- the hammer and nails to go and tighten the lid on a coffin. Mm-hmm. So what's going on in the South engages blacks for the amusement of whites. It does it economically. We give them money. We give them tobacco. We give them liquor. Um, They're smart enough to realize that they shouldn't jump into the grave. They're smart enough to realize they should not be alone with those white men. There needs to be enough of them for them to go and do it at all. Um, But the whites have a different view. And I think that, uh, that our narrator... Um, whether or not he is unreliable in the sense that you see implied by reading the story absent the original pieces that get excised, he certainly is unreliable in the sense that he does not tell us his true feelings. Mm-hmm. We do not know what's really going on with this guy. If we did, we would know why he's going to the South. If he did, we wouldn't have him accept Dr. Mason's uh, invitation because I had nothing that would interfere with it. We get no positive motivations from this guy at all, except that he needs to go to the South to be healed by the experience. Mm. Uh, There's a line that I I think is really interesting. When, uh, just before he steps into the grave... um, his name turner says and i love his name <laughs> in the context of somebody turning over in their grave um uh-huh. literally t- turning up earth right um it's it's he says it seems a shame to be forced to disturb the spirit of the departed <laughs> and then, <Right>. of course <laughs> he's departed shortly thereafter and no one forced him to do anything. No, that's right. And it, it, it's it, it, this this children's game of, you know, a rich men's sons, right? They're not rich. Their dads are rich. They're rich by default, right? They've done nothing to earn it. Where did all that money come from? That's unstated. But we know. <laughs> there is, um, years earlier, a very famous story by Hans Christian Andersen called What the Moon Saw. Oh, really? Yes. It's a story about a painter who um, doesn't seem to be able to find a subject that inspires him adequately. He's a struggling artist. And the moon tells him stories. The moon tells him, I saw this, and gives him a a sort of vignette. Um, In fact, the whole of the story, What the Moon Saw, is one vignette after another that the moon relates to the narrator as the moon travels around the world. I mean, sorry, to the painter as the moon travels around the world. And the painter, inspired by the stories, actually becomes a successful painter. The, the, what the moon saw is, as I say, a famous story of observation 
observation alone that in the right hands can make powerful art. Hmm. And it seems to me that the Rossetti sisters must have understood this because after all, without that as a background, Mm. why would the vantage point of the moon Mm. lend itself as a title to this story? Because it's even if we read this as a story of the North and America and as a whole dealing with slavery and its consequences, it also somehow talks about the relationship of the living to the dead and the haves and the have-nots all around the world. Mm-hmm. Just why once you make this connection, I think it's clear there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.